This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Glenn Harrison from from Bristol University says this, a revolution is underway. Attractive new ideas about being yourself and a feeling of being involved in a moral crusade for diversity and inclusion have been woven into compelling narratives of freedom, escaping, oppression and shame that empower you to flourish as you truly are. Boom. That sounds like a a positive revolution, doesn't it? Uh, Being yourself, diversity, inclusion, freedom, empowerment to flourish. It feels like, wow, this revolution, this sexual revolution that we've been involved in is like something very, very positive. And in in some senses, what we're going to do is we're going to affirm... And we're going to challenge that, uh, that idea. But I just want to be honest about my material. So much of my quotes come from this book called A Better Story uh, by this guy, Glenn Harrison, who's a, a professor of psychology at the University of Bristol. And he, uh, he, teaches on, he teaches on kind of social change at the university. So, you know, I, I, was, I was kind of scratching around for uh, what's the, 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 how can I process this because there's so much going on. And then, and then read this book and I thought, this guy absolutely nails it. So it's, it, it's, not, a, it's not a very long book. So if you want to get that book, A Better Story, if you find out, I'd like to uh, dig into this. But what he says, and, and what sent me to the book, was this quote that I found on a blog. There are still many in the Christian community who've not yet fully grasped the scale of social and cultural upheaval we're immersed in. This is massive stuff. And as the revolution continues to unfold, everything is changing. Society has moved on from reframing sex and deconstructing marriage to deconstructing the very idea of male and female itself. Many Christians in the UK seem to be hoping that if we keep our heads down long enough, it will go away. But it isn't going away. And so what I want to do is I want to tell you or show you the water that you're swimming in. And in one sense, you can't see the water you're swimming in. And and we swim... In this culture, we swim in this, this massive cultural and social change that's been going on. We swim in that water, we drink that water, and we don't even know that we're doing that. It's just become part of our thinking. And so one of the things that I really want to do uh, is, is to kind of help unpick that for you. So it's very untypical what I'm doing this morning. It's, uh, it's a bit more like, I used to teach geography. It's a bit more like a social science seminar than it is a Bible uh, uh, preach. Now you might think, oh, that's really frustrating because people come to me and say, I love it how you preach out the Bible. I love it how we finish with Jesus every week and we break bread. But I want to, to, to set the context so in the next couple of weeks, next three or four weeks, Stan's doing one of them and I've got a, a, a couple, few more. I, I want you to understand the background. 
so that, that when we talk about some of the big issues around, it doesn't just come across as if we are completely, we're just against this and with, uh, uh, without understanding what's going on, because it's, it's actually a bit of a cultural minefield. You know, it, it feels like, as I, even as I'm preparing this, I, I kind of made a, I made a slide on that, and I thought, oh, flip, I don't want to touch that. If I stand there, whoop, I might touch that. You know, it feels like you're walking through this cultural minefield, and, and if you mention things, if you mention words like homosexuality, and you mention that in the wrong way or the wrong context, boom, that can blow up. If you mention men and women's roles, boom, that can blow up in your face. If you mention trans, transgender and that kind of stuff, that can blow up in your face. Uh, uh, people, university professors, people in industry lose their jobs, get no platforms, are not invited to uh, speak at places because they step on a minefield of this cultural change and it goes off in their faces. So I'm thinking, man, I don't want to do that. And actually, as I've uh, talked to my friends and talked around, it's almost like you don't want to talk about this because it's, it's, it's so dangerous. But the reality is, if we don't talk about it, you're not going to talk about it. In your workplace, you're not going to have a clue what's going on, and you're just going to keep your head down. You're not going to say, this is what I believe about marriage, or this is what I believe about sex or sexuality. You're not going to do it, you're just going to keep your head down. If I'm not brave enough to do it in here with you guys who hopefully love me, it's going to be much, much harder out there. And the thing is, it's not simple. It's not a simple story. It's not simple. Who are the goodies and the baddies? So I want you to look and say, think, who are the goodies and who are the baddies in your eyes in this story? And who's the goodies and baddies in the world's eyes in this story? So let's start. Gay Pride March. What's your reaction, honestly? Goody or baddie? Baddie, I would say that, that, that my first reaction is, these are baddies. What are they doing? They're dressed up. I, mean, I could have found some pictures. Although I don't want to put them up for that for you. This is a, a tame picture. I could have put some pictures up and think, what are these people like? Sexually depraved, debauched kind of people walking through. I was in Washington, D.C. a couple of years ago, walked on through the Gay Pride March. It just felt, whoa, they're the baddies. What about a vicar? Goody or baddie? Goody. We might say goody in here. What might the world say? Why? Catholic church and child abuse. Or sexual affairs or immorality. Hypocrisy. Okay, what about lady committed in a, a court in the act of adultery in the Bible? I preached on this a few weeks ago so you can see if you... Goody or baddie? She's a baddie. But text two to tango. What about, what, about, uh, what about the Pharisees that brought her there? Goodies or baddies? Why are they baddies? Surely they care about what's right and wrong? <laughs> Struggle for hypocrisy. Let he who's without sin cast the first stone. We're not here to cast any stones this morning. It's so easy to be really simplistic about this and say, we're the goodies and they're the baddies. They're all got problems, they're all, they're all living in, in sin, and here we are, holy. It's too easy. If you've never had a, committed a sexual sin, you would probably, in Jesus' story, be able to cast the stone at that woman. But nobody could. And none of you can. And, at the, and the church for a long time has stood and thrown stones 
Now you're worried at this point, aren't you? Because you think, what is he doing? Is he going to affirm this? Or is he going to critique it? Well, I'm going to try and do both. So you need to have your clever brains on. And I know that you've got clever brains, so that's good. Okay, so let's start with a little bit on the past. Let's start with the past. Um, uh, you know, the past is a foreign country, said someone. And in one sense, it is a long time. I was born, it was my birthday, did you like the new shirt? I, I was born uh, in 1960. The sexual revolution started in 1961 to many kind of observers because the contraceptive pill uh, made its appearance in 1961. Uh, but if you'd have asked most people in 1961 what their view of marriage is, it would have probably been something like this. This was the consensus. They may not have believed it or done it, but this was the consensus. God intended marriage as a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman. Marriage isn't simply a human arrangement, but something sacred in God's eyes. God himself joins a man and a woman together in one flesh. This understanding prohibits all forms of sexual activity outside the marriage bond. 1960, 1950, most people have gone, yes. Today? No. It's a, it's a view that's seen as traditional. It's a view that's seen as restrictive. And part of the problem that people have struggled with this is because churches, we've had a kind of, ooh, naughty, naughty kind of view of sex. You don't really talk about it. You know, we keep our... Uh, so, you know, so I've, got, I've had teenage kids. If you've got teenage kids or if you're a teenager in here, you are swimming... In the, in the sexual revolution water. And, and, and the reality is, you've got to engage with that with your kids, you've got to engage with that as you, if you're a student, and you can't just hide your, you can't just say, oh, it's naughty, it's dirty, we don't want to talk about it. You've got to talk about it. A friend of mine who was a pastor in London said, you need to be ahead of the playground. So we try to be ahead of the playground. We want them to hear the truth from us before they saw it acted out or spoken about on the internet, on their phone, whatever. We want it to be ahead of the curve. And I want you as a church to be ahead of the curve. But the problem is in the past, Christendom or the, the, the kind of churchianity as it were, not necessarily Christians, but Christendom, the, the, the world where church was at the centre, has had weird views of sex. Try these. Ambrose, the 4th century. He says, better the extinction of the human race than we participate in sex. Origen, 3rd century, was so fearful of the flaming passions of sex that he castrated himself. <laughs> Jerome, in the 5th century, took to throwing himself in the bramble bushes whenever he felt the urge. So, ooh, Francis of Assisi, isn't that weird? <laughs> Made women out of snow and then caressed them to quiet his love. I guess it's kind of like, you know, pour cold water on it, as it were. But interesting, the church had got this idea that sex was so dirty, but in the 5th century, it prohibited church leaders, wrongly called priests, that's a talk for another day, from getting married. And the Catholic church still doesn't uh, let uh, priests get married. I'm glad I'm not a Catholic. But it gets weirder. How about this? I, found, I don't know where I found this, but this, has got a, this, this made me laugh, if nothing else. The medieval church actually forbade sex between married couples on holy days. You know when you say, we're going on holiday, that was not happening on holiday. You know, that's what holy day comes. And, 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 and so, you know, your you, you summer holiday, no, no. <laughs> your holy days, 
No. And then just to keep you, keep you pure, on Thursdays you weren't allowed to have sex for the memory of the Lord's arrest. On Fridays you weren't allowed to have sex in memory of the crucifixion. On Saturdays to honour the Virgin Mary. It's going to get bad, isn't it? On Sunday to celebrate the Christ's resurrection. And on Monday in, re- to, in respect of the departed souls. Married couples... I guess uh, PJ Smythe, a friend of mine, he said, they left their office. It's probably been said there. They left their office really early on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. <laughs> but it's weird, isn't it? And we've not wanted to talk about it. But we must talk about it. And in the past, that, 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 that we were told what to think by, by institutions. Christendom, which is the state where the church the church was kind of primary, so the, the Church of Rome that kind of dominated Western European uh, culture and thinking for, for uh, 1,700, 1,800 years. The church would basically tell you what to think about sex and sexuality, tell you what to, to, uh, to, to believe. The, the state or the government would legislate for your sexual behaviour. So it's against the law to be divorced for much of Christendom, against the law to have same sex, against the law. The the state would legislate. You'd go to prison. And what did the the church do with people that, that didn't agree? In the most extreme cases. They'd burn them. You know, in the medieval, in the 11th century, people were burnt for their views on God and their sexual behaviour whether they were Jews and homosexuals, they were burnt. Is that good? No, that's not good. But we, that's, that was the culture. In marriage, a man had authority over the woman. So much so that she was considered in, through much of medieval times and even to quite recently to be the possession of a man. So when divorce was first allowed in this country, men were allowed to divorce women. Women were not allowed to divorce men. In Islam, that's still the case. Men can divorce women, women cannot divorce men. And if a woman or a wife, if a wife was, uh, uh, if there was a hint that a wife was, was enjoying sex, that was a problem. She was meant to endure it. If you've watched um, Paul Dark. Yeah, you'll get a little illustration of that. But, but we've got these, these institutions, and how do you respond to those institutions? How do you respond to the church telling you what to say? The, the established church, the Catholic church, or the Church of England, how do you stop for that? How do you feel about the church saying you, what you should and shouldn't do in your own bedroom? How do you feel about that? What do you feel about the, the idea that, that marriage was this, in some way this patriarchal thing? How do you feel about that? Well, I don't feel good about that. So it's into that background, into that situation that we had what uh, I'm calling, the, or what was called the sexual revolution. Let's just look at some of the things that move this on. The first thing was women's rights. Are we in favour of women's rights? We are. We're in favour of women's rights. You know, the way women were treated, the way women were isolated, the way women were exploited, the way women were cut out of situations was wrong. The church was involved in that, the state was involved in that, and, and men and husbands were involved in that. So what happens is, we watch a film about suffragettes and we think, where to go? I'm all for that. What were they thinking? 
And then interestingly, women whose traditional role, and I'm not saying there's no roles in men and women, we're going to come to that in future weeks, that a tra- women's traditional role of staying at home and bearing children and men going out to, to work was start to, to, to crumble in the First World War, but definitely in the Second World War, because all the men were all fighting and all the women went out to work. And so what happened is suddenly women rightly are finding empowerment. They're finding that there's a certain sense of freedom from the economic uh, 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 reliance on their husbands. And then, what happens, what's happened with sex and marriage? 1961, the contraceptive pill. It's not that people didn't practice uh, a contraception before that time, but suddenly it was easy. I'm not against a contraceptive pill. Some Catholic churches would say we don't believe in contraception. We're not against contraception. Clearly, you're not against contraception, or there'd be a lot more babies around, although there's a fair few. So, I, I don't know, maybe there'd be a lot more. We're not against contraception. 1967, the Abortion Act. It's a complex issue, abortion. I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to say it's there. It's a complex issue. The woman's right to choose. The baby's right to life. Often it, it's based on your political spectrum. If you're to the left, you tend to favour the woman's right to choose. If you're the right, you tend to favour the rights of the unborn child. But it's a complex issue. But the fact is that when you take away the boundaries around where sex happens, in other words, from a married between a man and woman, abortions go up. And I know there's situations about what about rape and what about this. But the fact is, abortions go up when, when sex loses its boundaries. So this is an advert from the 1970s. Would you be more careful if it was you that got pregnant? Still very much kind of into uh, the, the sort of gender, a little bit of stereotypes. But the question is, who benefits from free sex? Who benefits? Do men benefit or women? Both, or is it not? Is it neutral? 1969, the divorce reform. There was divorce before that in the 1800s, only men. 1920s, uh, you, uh, women were, uh, when suffragettes uh, got, where they got the votes, women were allowed to divorce husbands a bit. They ha- you couldn't divorce until 1969 just because you weren't getting on. Irreconcilable differences, one. That. They're just actually trying to get, take that away completely now. But so divorce was liberalised. Glenn Harrison, in his book, says the the, un, the final unravelling of marriage as an institution, founded on a for better for worse commitment of, of permanence, almost certainly began with the introduction of safe, reliable contraception. At a stroke, sex was uncoupled from childbearing and all the family responsibilities that go with it. Who bears most of the family responsibilities when you have babies? The woman. So it gave men the right to go. But what it did do is is people's bodies were their own. They're free to express themselves as they wished. And that feels like a nice phrase, doesn't it? Free to express yourself as I wish. That feels like we resonate with that culturally. 
But what happened with divorce? Now, like I said, there was hardly any divorce. And then divorce in the ni- 1960s, 66, after the divorce act, bang. Look how up it goes. Peaks around at the turn of the millennium. Why has it gone down? People don't bother getting married now. But we've seen this unravelling uh, of the institution of marriage. Not that the, ma- the institution's perfect as was expressed all the time, but in one sense it's a biblical institution. So what's the big idea of this social revolution? I guess you could call it what's called expressive individualism. Free to be yourself. In one sense, uh, the sexual revolution has ushered in new freedoms and opportunities for women. Tick. Who were previ- and those previously pushed to the margins have found justice. Who would they be? Homosexuals. Have found justice and social inclusion. And we should welcome and celebrate those developments. We must understand, though, that our culture isn't the culture for the whole world. And where there is a real lot of cultural imperialism, where we think the culture that we've got in 20, what we, 2019 is like the perfect culture. And if you go to some African country and they say, we don't agree, it's against the law, homosexuality is against the law, we think, how, how, how backward. So we, we think where, we're, where we've arrived now is actually the cultural norm. But actually God's cultural norm has stayed right through. And cultures agree with it and disagree with it. So we, we like bits about the Bible in our culture that says forgive. We don't like bits about the Bible that says don't commit adultery. So there's bits of our culture that agrees and bits of our culture, bits that affirms and bits that challenges. What about, let's just look at a few things here. The individual and authority. How's the, the, the revolution, the sexual revolution, this kind of idea that you can express yourself and be free to be yourself, how's that worked out? Again, Glyn Harrison. So what was so different about the 1960s? Previously, individualism, that right to express yourself, to be yourself, had been about striking the right balance between individual thought and reason on one hand, external authority, church, state, and the wisdom and tradition. So your own thoughts and reason, external authority and wisdom. Now, the only authority we've got in this game is we're free from external authority. We're free from tradition. Where's the authority now to say what's right and wrong? Where does it lie? With us. Thank you, David. With us. And so we've, so we've got this idea that nobody's going to tell me what to do because I want to be free. And if no one can tell you what to do, the only person that can decide what to do is you. And so this idea of that I can express myself how I want sexually, it, it, it starts to become, no pun intended, embedded in our society. How, how does that affect what we think about what's going to really save us? Where does our society search for a better world? Something to save them from a broken world. Salvation for Christians is found in Jesus. It's found outside ourselves. But salvation for, the, for our society is found looking inside yourself to find your true self. It's in this freedom from the, 
uh, freedom of this inner self, unconstrained by external authorities, that we find salvation. And in fact, actually, we're so, so determined that, that w- who defines what the real reality is, is that if our gender, if we feel our gender says this, but our physical reality says that, what are we changing? We're changing the physical reality, aren't we? Because the sense of self-determination is huge. It's so critical. So you look for... Find, you know, search for the hero inside yourself. Find yourself. You know, it, it's Disney, isn't it? You know, let it go, let it go. You know, it's Brokeback Mountain. It's, it's find freedom in your self-expression. And who's against self-expression? I can I'm not? It's quite compelling, isn't it? The argument for self-expression is quite compelling. So that was the big idea of the revolution. What about the idea of the, the ideal of the revolution? The ideal of the revolution is you're free to be authentic. So what happens if a gay pride march comes past the, past the church building? What do we do? We close the doors, bolt it up and turn away and go, ah! Oh! And outside we think they're being debauched, but actually what do they think? They think, I'm being authentic. This is who I am, and I'm expressing who I am. I'm being authentic. And who are the hypocrites in this zone? The ones inside who can't talk about sex, but have got all weird ideas about it. Us. So we've become the away team. We were the home team, and we've become the away team. What we believed in church or as Christians was the consensus. Now it's not. Now we're the, now we're the outsider. And if you pop your hand, head up at work in the coffee break and say, I believe that, it's going to be tricky, uh, tricky for you. So we've got this inner self. The ideal is self-determination. I found this uh, uh, little graph uh, or little chart from a guy called Jonathan Had. He's an American guy and he wrote this. Let me just explain uh, the, the chart on the right. Basically, it, it, it says on one side what we value and then what we're to avoid. So let's just try one. Care and harm. We value care. And we want to avoid harm, yeah? You see that as a kind of cultural value. Liberty and oppression. We value freedom. We, don't, we, we want to avoid oppression, yeah? We value fairness and we hate inequality. We value loyalty struggle with betrayal. We value authority. We don't like subversives. We value holiness. We don't like degradation. Now, as I read down that list, what do you value? (coughs) Western society, and that would be you, liberal society, so there are social conservatives who would disagree with this, but most liberals, most media, most of the TV outlets would say, the things that are most important to me are at the top of the list. Yep. Tracking? Conservative religious believers, if, you, if you're true to what is sanctity, holiness, like, should be a high value, right? You're struggling to say that because we feel caught in this... <laughs> 
authority, the authority of the Bible. Yeah, that's, that's a good authority. I don't want sub- people who subvert that. They're, they're bad people. So what happens is we've got this cultural thing about how you make decisions. So don't go, don't go to the next slide. I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, somebody says to you, do you believe in sex before marriage or sex outside of marriage? What are you going to say? I'll tell you how it goes. And see which you feel most comfortable with. Yes, sex outside marriage is okay. If you love each other and nobody is harmed, people need to be free to be themselves. That kind of floats, doesn't it? That kind of flies. Right, no. Sex outside marriage is sinful and shameful. The Bible forbids adultery. Can you see how when we argue, if you argue from the authority of the Bible or holiness, you feel really out of step with culture? Yeah. So, so what happens, we've got to change our narrative, but I'm just kind of stereotyping to kind of put us in a box so you feel, man, I feel uncomfortable in that box. In fact, I'd much rather be in that box. It's, yeah, let's love each other. It's all fine. Uh, you know, the, do, you see, do you see the tension? And that works with everything. And so what happens is the cultural narrative has been stolen from us, and we just think, oh! So I'm a school governor, and if they show me the... The policy on gender, gender, transgender, how am I going to say? Mr. Headmaster, I don't agree with this, because the Bible says... He's just going to laugh, isn't he? How do, you, how do you talk about those complex issues without judgment? Okay, I'm not asking for you to have a rhetorical question. <laughs> okay, so there's been this revolution in morality. The sexual revolution defines freedom, fairness, and human flourishing, all things we love. And so, if, as if from nowhere, I, put, I said this earlier, Christians whose views that once occupied the mainstream of public morality are cast as immoral, bigoted, small-minded, and oppressive. If you give the opinion about the Bible and whatever, you're seen as oppressive. Now, Christians are not oppressive, and we shouldn't be oppressive. And Jesus wasn't oppressive. Jesus says both, doesn't he? Woman caught in the act of adultery. Go and sin no more. Where's that? It's down the bottom, isn't it? What about, I do not condemn you? Where's that? It's near the top. You read Jesus, he does both. We don't have to choose. But society wants to make us choose. And it makes us choose who's really authentic, and I've said this already. It makes us choose who's really authentic. And the world out there does not think they're inauthentic. It thinks we are. You agree? So it's hard to speak. Let's just do one more on this, try and unpack the story. So there's the big idea, the ideal of self-expression, the big idea of you can be yourself. The ideal is that everybody gets to be who they want to be. And then the big story, and story is the most powerful of all. Story is most powerful of all. So who, uh, who saw the film The Imitation Game? Does anyone want to know who, it, who it's about? Yeah. It's about Alan Turing. Alan Turing, good or bad? It's not straightforward, eh? I would say amazing mind. 
amazing mind. You know, reduced by cracking the Enigma code, he's reduced, reduced the, the casualties in the war by millions. He's invented the computer. You know, it shapes the world that we live in. But it's homosexual. How did he die? Does anyone know? Have you seen the film? He committed suicide because what happened is he was caught in a homosexual relationship. He was caught in a homosexual relationship and he was, it was against the law at that time. He was condemned to chemical castration or imp either imprisonment or chemical castration. He was working on some research so he chose chemical castration which is giving you hormones. It's, you know, we'll talk about that in, in weeks to come about giving hormones. And in the end he, he was so miserable he died. How do you feel about Alan Turing? There's a program on BBC over the last uh, month or two called Icons. Called Icons. And they had a number of icons of the 20th, 20, 20th century. And they had to vote. There were people from sports and from science and from entertainment and from politics. And they had some really, you know, Mark Martin Luther King was in there. I love that guy. Mandela was in there. Muhammad Ali was in there. Okay, cool. I, you know, the greatest. Floats like a butterfly, stings like a bee. You know, we'll get him in there. Who won the vote? You probably didn't see this because it's geeks only, isn't it? Did anyone see this? Geeks only. Thank you. Geeks only. I watched it. <laughs> he won. Did he win because of his brilliant computing or did he win because he's a hero in the new story? Glenn Harrison again. The revolution's narrative draws you into its struggle for something better. You know, we want to throw off this sexual oppression. As you hear the story, maybe the face of Alan Turing flickers at the back of your mind, capturing something of the sense of the heroic struggle to be yourself against seemingly impossible odds of organised religions and political elites. Complex. So you have got to understand that. You've got to understand that is the world you're in. Expressive individualism. The right to be yourself, determining your own view of right and wrong. The, the, and the heroes of this, ones, uh, of, of this story are the ones who stood against the oppression of institutions like church and state and marriage. That's the cup we're swimming in. I, I'm just going to unpick it for a little bit. Um, and then as we go through the next couple of weeks, I'm going to try and say how, how do we respond in some of the hot button areas. So I've just titled this little section as we finish, um, Sexual Re Re Revolution, How It Failed to Deliver. So I'm going to make some sweeping statements and you might think, ah, it's not so straightforward, I don't like you at this point, boom, off goes the landmine. So keep your thoughts to yourself. Think about it though. So here's my first one, the unravelling of marriage is bad for women. This is a, from the Washington Post. Left of leaning paper, in, just in case you're worried, or where it came from. This, he writes this, Washington Post. Single motherhood has grown so common in the United States that demographers now believe that half of all children will live with a single mom at some point before the age of 18. 54%. Now, we've had single moms in this church who've done an amazing <coughs> job. Done an amazing job. You might have been brought up by a single mom. You might be a single mom. I'm not criticising single moms. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at how well they do. 
Because when the guy walks away, because he's got the right to express himself how he wants, when he wants, the mum's at home with the kids. It's not far from any of us. Interesting in this survey, and again, I'm dumped to saying this out of any sense of racism, this is a fact in the United States, 72% of black Americans will grow up with only one parent at home, a mum. Is that good for women? Is it good that men can just say, I don't carry my responsibilities? You deal with it. You go have an abortion. You deal with it. In, in 1926, actually, uh, Joseph Stalin, because he's a, a communist, atheist, said marriage is a lot of junk. Uh, an American magazine, again called The Atlantic, wrote this, wrote this in a survey from 1926. What he did? He said, we're abolishing marriage. This is what happened. Is this good for women? Men, it says, this is 1926, took to changing wives with the same zest that they displayed in the consumption of vodka. Peasant boys looked upon marriage as an exciting game and changed wives with the change of the season. It was not unusual for a man of 20 to have had three or four wives and for a woman of the same age to have three or four abortions. And in fact, the unravelling of marriage not only hits women, it also hits the poorest. It hits the poorest. This is the spectator, right-leaning paper this time, said this. Somehow marriage, with all the advantages that it confers, has become the preserve of the rich. Even as they undermine its importance for everyone else, today's liberal elites seem to know something about marriage that they're keeping to themselves. <coughs> marriage is on the increase in the top 20% demographic of wealth, wealthiest people, best educated people. Marriage has almost been completely abandoned by the bottom 20%. And the elites that control the culture and control the media and control what everybody thinks, he, the spectator says they're keeping it to themselves. But it's the poor and the least educated who pay. Robert Putnam, who's an American guy who wrote a book called Bowling Alone, which is a really interesting book, wrote a, a book called Our Kids, The American Dream in Crisis. He says this, Sat at the bottom end of the privilege scale, he's a kid whose parents wouldn't live together for any reason. This is his language, I find it harsh, but subjected to parade of feckless male role models and a revolving door of different carers, this boy gets through life as best he can, but basically, he's home alone. Now, I'm not saying that if you came from, come from that background, you, you can't make a go of your life. I'm not saying I'm social determinist and that can't happen. But the reality is if you work in education or psychology or social services, you know it's true. You know it's so much harder. So much harder for poor guys than for the parents of rich kids. And that's not just wealth. It's also the cohesion of the family. Princeton University... Uh, uh, in the US, it's called the Brookings Institute, said this. 
Most scholars now agree that children raised by two biological parents in a stable marriage do better than children in other family forms across the wide range of outcomes. Now that sounds like I'm condemning other forms. No, I'm just trying to state the facts. But if you listen to the media, all forms are valid, eh? Would you agree that if you listen to the media, all forms are valid? You might even think all forms are valid. And in one sense, all forms are valid that they should be free from prejudice and should be loved and encouraged by us. But the fact is, marriage, unravelling of marriage is bad for kids. Lastly, on unravelling of marriage, and then I'm almost done. The unravelling of marriage is bad for community. Sociologist Eric, pronounce that for me, El, 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 El Kalinenberg, sounds like he's German, but he's from the States, in his book Going Solo says this, living alone in such large numbers is historically novel. Why have we got a housing crisis? Because, oh, it's all those immigrants, let's vote for a Brexit. But we need thousands and thousands of new houses. Why? Because everyone's living alone. The guy writes, he's not a Christian, he's just observing, he says, I originally thought this, this change uh, resulted from some social aberration. But then I discovered that living alone comports with the most sacred of modern values. Here these, freedom, autonomy, that's I've got a right to be myself without interference, control of one's time and space, and the search for individual fulfilment. While we're all searching for individual fulfilment, we're all sitting on our own unimpacted by anybody from the outside, determined to just do our own thing, and that we're alone. C.S. Lewis talks about uh, his description of hell is, he, he takes this uh, guy uh, around uh, a town, and, and the, the guy says, why is the town empty? And he said, because sin means you don't want to live with anyone else. You just want to be alone. So C.S. Lewis describes this sprawling uh, concrete jungle of empty houses, uninhabited, apart from the odd person living alone. Let's do two more. Be yourself defines reality. And we're going to look at this a bit later going on. If we're completely self-defined, Oh, flip. If we're completely self-defined and free from external authority, and, that, and the Cultural Revolution is saying, that's great, taking our sense of self only from within, we should not be surprised that some people find they struggle with even the bodies that nature has given them. External, and we talked about this, external physical realities need to be transformed to align while that inner definition of ourselves. I'm going to talk about this, so I'm not going to comment. But we are going to talk about transgender. It's not a straightforward issue. But it's an issue we need to know what we think. What about this one? Sex has been described or seen as human flourishing. The revolution's narrative tells us that, our sexual, that sexual fulfillment is the highest point of human flourishing. When we're told to deny ourselves in a sexual manner is to become less than fully human. So we desire more, better and more fulfilling sex while all the time feeling sexually unfulfilled. Unfettered, unbounded sex has not made more people having sex. It's means that less are. 
It's men that more people feel sexual challenges and issues. Some it's the sexual addictions, but some it's just the complex nature of, of sex has got so messed up that, that, that we, we don't know how to handle it. But we're told all the time, if you're having sex, you're going to be ultimately happy. That's what Hollywood tells us. Did Jesus have sex? No. Was he the ultimate height of human flourishing? Yes. But we act in church like if you're not married, you're some sort of aberration. Stan's going to talk about that next week. How do you handle singleness in church? Paul's single. Jesus is single. But our culture says, how can you be fulfilled, Jesus, when you're not having sex? And if you're asked to deny sex because your faith in Jesus, well, you must be a weirdo. And the last thing on this, individual cannot be questioned. Sadly, in the past, we were taught not to question authority of church or state or husband. Now what can't we question? Today, although we're told we're free from authority, the irony is we're not free to express opinion contrary to the authority of the sexual revolution. We'll be, we'll be called bigots, phobic, or silenced. It's true, isn't it? You can't have this debate. You can't have this debate. I read an article uh, of a guy uh, who was at University of Bath wanted to do a PhD or a master's on uh, gender reassignment. I'll talk about it in more detail next week. Gen gender reassignment and, and whether it turned out positive or negatively. He was told by his supervisors he couldn't research that. Too politically explosive, they said. And lastly, what about salvation? The modern self, writes Glyn Harrison, is simply too weak, too insecure to sustain a, a sense of our own worth. You know, if you're looking inside yourself for your own salvation, you're looking inside yourself for your own fulfillment, you're going to find actually that you're not all there. Self-affirmation, like self-identification, backfires for the people who need it most. In fact, there's good evidence that the pursuit of self-esteem for its own sake drives people back into more striving and more approval-seeking. Let me just give you three slides on the Gospel story. We're going to talk about this in weeks to come, identity. What does the Gospel say about identity? What does the Gospel say about marriage and how that relates to things? Let me just give you... We know at the beginning of the Bible story that we denied our identity as created in the image of God. We say, no, we don't want to be that. And we grasped at being gods ourselves and found not salvation, but shame and confusion, doubt, insecurity, fear. We found selfishness, greed and violence. The challenge of saying, look inside yourself for ultimate fulfilment the truth is, if we dare to look, it's not a nice place to look. But that's what the sexual revolution is saying. Find, that's where you're going to find it. And we know that's a myth. Identity is not found in the self or in constructed in the self, but it's a gift to the self from God. So what we're going to talk about in the weeks to come, I'm going to talk about how marriage is a gift from God. It's positive and for human flourishing. How your body is a gift from God. It's for human flourishing. Let me finish with this and then the band can come back and we'll have a think how we can process this. 
We love, I've written here, because God is love. And if you were here at the dedication when I talked about faithfulness, fruitfulness and sacrifice, I talked about those kind of aspects of God's character that shape a marriage and family. Glenn Harrison, give him the last word. The desire for relationships, for intimacy and affection is fundamental to the purpose and meaning of our lives as creatures made in the image of God. We love like this because the one in whose image we made loves like this. We are longing creatures because we long for him. And sometimes there's a stark choice to be made. Do you long for God, for ultimate fulfilment? Or are you going to believe the story of the sexual revolution, that that's where it's found? And we all face that choice. Let's pray. Please stand with me. I'm not going to get you to come to the front. I'm just going to pray that you process this. Father, you say in your word, if anybody lacks wisdom, let them ask. And right now, for for God First Church, for everyone in this room, Christian or non-Christian, visitor or member, we ask for wisdom. Lord, we pray that we'd know what to affirm and what to challenge. That we'd be able to unpick the cultural narrative and tell a better story. Lord, I pray that we would know how to understand that actually you're the one who keeps us safe and cares for us. The one who says, gather under the shadow of my wings and kept from harm. You're the one who gives us true liberty and true freedom. You're the one who puts the dignity in every man and woman because we're created in your image. Lord, we thank you that the the roots of what we're striving for, freedom and fairness and love and care, are found not in throwing off the boundaries, but in holding tight to you. So God, I pray, help us to think and process, I pray that we would be unashamed as we hold out the word of truth in a generation that's got all out of shape. Amen. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.